0: blessing to the reading and proclamation of your word. Lord, would you open our eyes so that we might receive your word with faith? Father, I ask that you would open my mouth that I might preach to your people the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places according to the eternal purpose that you have realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Might we get a glimpse of that this morning through the power of your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, we looked at the way Jesus was introduced to us at the very beginning of the Old Testament. This week, I want to draw our attention briefly at first to to the way Jesus is introduced at the very beginning of the New Testament. We don't have to look very far. Matthew 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And of course, by speaking this way, Matthew is letting us know that the identity of Christ and the mission he came to accomplish is rooted in the storyline of the Old Testament. And so we're going to look at these two titles of Jesus, not in the order they appeared in Matthew 1, verse 1, but in chronological order. This week, we will look at Jesus as the son of Abraham, and then, Lord willing, next week, we will look at Jesus as the son of David. So to look at Jesus today as the son of Abraham, we're going to return to the book of Genesis and read two short passages, one at the very beginning of the account of Abraham's life and the other almost at the end. Both of these passages use very similar language. They both contain God's promise to Abraham that through him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. We might say that the first passage sets a trajectory for everything that's going to follow. And I believe we can see the second as the climax of everything that has gone before. And then after we read those passages, I'd like us to turn to Galatians chapter 3. And there we will see the Apostle Paul's inspired interpretation of how we are to understand the promise that God gave to Abraham in the book of Genesis. The Old Testament anticipates the New, the New Testament interprets the Old. So by God's grace, we trust he will use his word this morning to increase our understanding of how his redemptive plan all fits together, and in so doing, we trust and hope that it will increase our love for Christ and our sense of wonder at what he has accomplished for us. So I'd like to ask you to turn with me now to, first of all, Galatians chapter 12. Galatians 12. Excuse me. I meant to say Genesis 12. You might have a hard time finding Galatians 12. If you're using a pew Bible, that'll be found uh, very close to the beginning on page 8. Page 8. We have those Bibles for you if you don't have one of your own. So Genesis 12, first of all, verses 1 through 3. I'm going to ask you if you would please, if you're able to, stand in honor of the reading of God's word. <clears throat> now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now would you turn over a few pages to chapter 22. And here we're going to read verses 15 through 18. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. And now finally, I'd ask you to turn to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians 3. Verses 1 through 18. So now I ask you to hear the word of God spoken through the apostle Paul in the letter to the Galatians. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, Preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. There is one central point I believe we need to see this morning from the account of Abraham's life, his faith in God's promise, and the New Testament interpretation of that promise. Last week, we saw that Jesus was the seed of the woman who came to destroy the works of the devil. Today, we need to see that Jesus is the son of Abraham who came to bring blessing to all the nations of the earth. That is the concluding line of God's promise to Abraham that we read in Genesis 12. Perhaps we could say it's even the summary of that promise. And that's what Paul focuses on in Galatians 3, verse 8. In you, speaking to Abraham first, in you shall all the nations be blessed. And of course, at that point, Paul is right in the middle of a very vigorous defense of the gospel and the doctrine of justification by faith. In verses 1 through 5, he has reminded the Galatians in a very severe tone of rebuke that through the preaching of Christ, they have received the gift of the Spirit by faith, not through the works of the law. And in verse 6, he draws the connection to Abraham who believed God and therefore had it accounted to him as righteousness. Now, notice the conclusion. He does not draw from that. He does not say... Abraham received certain promises from God and he believed those promises and he was justified. And so in a similar manner, believers today receive certain promises from God and so if we believe those promises, we'll be justified. That's not how he says it. What he was arguing in verse 7 is that those who are of faith are the sons of Abraham. They have faith like Abraham, not only in a general way, because they both believe in the same God, they actually receive and believe the very same promise that God gave to Abraham. It's the promise stated in verse 8, in you shall all the nations be blessed. And that promise is called nothing less than the gospel. Paul says that in these words, scripture was foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles or the nations by faith. And so He was announcing the gospel ahead of time, beforehand, to Abraham. In other words, the account of Abraham's life and the example of his faith are far more than an inspiring story from the past that give us some principles to help guide our lives. In part, we might say it's the difference between hearing a story about a brave pioneer who traveled into the wilderness to find a new life and then learning that that pioneer was your direct ancestor. It's not just a story, it's your family, and so it's your story as well. If you are a believer in Christ, part of the family of God, Scripture says you are a son or daughter of Abraham, and therefore an heir to the same inheritance that he was promised. So Paul concludes this section in verse 9 by saying that those who are of faith are not just blessed like Abraham, they're blessed along with Abraham. That is, they are co-heirs of the promise that he received. Now, Paul's opponents, of course, did not want to accept that. They insisted if you wanted to inherit the promise, you also had to keep the law. And that's why Paul has to address the nature and purpose of the law in this letter, and especially in this chapter, chapter 3. And I do want us to return later to verses 9 through 14, but for now I want us to see how it is that we can receive the promise made to Abraham and his offspring when, in fact, we're not related to him by physical descent. At least uh, I assume that about most of us in this room. For Paul, who is speaking with apostolic authority, it's all because of Christ, isn't it? He wants us to notice the specific language of the Old Testament about the seed of Abraham. We saw this language last week talking about the seed of the woman. The word can be either singular or plural, depending on the context. And Paul is sensitive to the the different possible uses of the word. When he uses the word at the end of chapter 3, for example, he's using the word in its plural sense. In keeping with his argument... Throughout the chapter that all who believe in Christ are part of the seed or offspring of Abraham. There it's plural. But as a careful student of the Old Testament with the Holy Spirit revealing these things to him. Apparently he observed in Genesis 22 that God changes from plural language to a singular pronoun in verse 17. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. Not their enemies, but his enemies. It's like Genesis 3.15 that we looked at last week, isn't it? It's one particular offspring who defeats his foes. And that is the offspring he continues to speak of in verse 18, in whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And of course, Paul does not leave us guessing who that is. That offspring, he says in verse 16 of Galatians 3, is Christ. The nations are blessed along with Abraham Through the fulfillment of God's promise in Christ. And this understanding of the significance and meaning of God's promise to Abraham shows up. It will show up in multiple places in the New Testament. We read briefly last week from Luke chapter 1. Mary's prayer of thanksgiving and worship that celebrates the work of salvation that God is bringing about through her son. Here's how she concludes the prayer in verses 54 and 55. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his offspring forever. So what is the meaning of this birth, as Mary understands it, the birth of this child that she now carries in her womb? Well, it means that God has remembered to be merciful. He has come to the aid of his people in fulfillment of the promise that he made to their fathers, that is, to Abraham and his offspring. And Zechariah will use similar language, just a, a, a few verses down in the same chapter, as he celebrates the birth of his son, John the Baptist, The salvation that God was bringing to his people from their enemies, from the hand of those who hated them, was for this purpose, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. So in Mary's mind, in Zechariah's mind, in the minds of all the remnant who waited for the coming salvation of God, That salvation equaled the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. And in fact, Paul will show that he is thinking along that that same trajectory, that same line in Romans 15.8. There he says that Christ came as a servant to the circumcised. That would be the Jews, of course. And why is that? What is the purpose? In order to confirm the promises made to the patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Then he continues, Romans 15 verse 9 says this was also done, why? In order that the Gentiles would praise God for his mercy. And he quotes, he then proceeds to quote a number of Old Testament texts to show that God's eventual purpose was always to include Gentiles in the salvation and the worship of Israel. And brothers and sisters, this is really good news for us. There was a time, Paul says in Ephesians 2, when you were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise. That, he clearly implies, that's no longer the case. Here's what he says. Now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. And he's speaking there of peace with God and peace between Jew and Gentile. and those to those who were near for through him we both have access in one spirit to the father so then you are no longer strangers and aliens but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of god well this has all been brought about paul's very clear because of the work of christ this is the point that Paul is making. The blessing of Abraham, which is nothing less than eternal salvation, has come upon the Gentiles. Because of one particular seed or offspring of Abraham, through faith in him, those who were once enemies of Israel and excluded from the, her- from the inheritance have become part of God's family. That's the big picture of how Paul wants us to understand God's promise to Abraham. So for the rest of our time this morning, I want us to go back to the book of Genesis and keep in mind Paul's interpretive framework as we look at Abraham's life of faith in response to God's promise. First of all, I want to say this. God's promise of blessing to Abraham not only represents a new beginning, but a reversal of the curse that we saw beginning back in chapter 3 and then which is fleshed out in chapters 4 through 11. It's very interesting. God uses the word bless or blessing five times in reference to Abraham there in chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Prior to that, the word curse had been used five times in, in the book of Genesis in reference to the serpent, to the ground, to Cain, and to Canaan. But now God is declaring his intent to restore the original blessing given to Adam and Eve. Remember, they were blessed by God in a fruitful garden. They were commanded by God to be fruitful and multiply. Now God is showing a fruitful land to Abraham, as well as giving him a promise that he will be fruitful and multiply. That brings us to another point, which is this. God's promise to Abraham always centers upon his offspring. God's promise to Abraham always centers upon his offspring. He's going to make Abraham into a great nation. As the father of that nation, Abraham will have a great name and be a blessing to others. A little later in that same chapter, we will read God's promise that he will give the land of Canaan to his offspring. Of course, all of this presupposes what? Abraham is going to have descendants, lots of descendants. But, of course, there's one small problem, isn't there? Abraham's wife, Sarai, is barren. She's unable to have children. We're told this fact at the very beginning of this story. Even before we get to chapter 12, read about God's call to Abraham. We're introduced to Sarai, Abraham's wife. It's the first thing we're told about her. She's barren. So this really forms... The central drama from chapters 12 through 21. How is God going to fulfill his promise to Abraham? When God tells him in chapter 15 that he is going to receive a great reward, Abraham doesn't understand. He questions how that's going to come to pass. Because he doesn't have any children. And it looks like his chief servant in the house is going to be his heir. But you remember the story. God replies, No, this man is not going to be your heir. It's going to be your own son. He takes him outside. He shows him the stars of the sky, asks him if he can count them all, and then promises, That's how numerous your offspring is going to be. And Abraham believes, he takes God at his word. It's not for the first time in his life. It's part of an ongoing pattern. God reveals his purpose and plan a little at a time. Abraham responds with faith, and God counts it to him as righteousness. God delivers a verdict that, in, that anticipates the verdict he will give to all who believe this promise, to all who look to Abraham's offspring as the source of ultimate blessing. God says, you are accepted in my sight, forgiven of all sins, and counted as a worthy recipient of the eternal inheritance. But we're still left unsure exactly how this is going to play out. So we get to chapter 16. Abraham, Abram, at this point, and Sarai have been living in Canaan, it says, for 10 years now. And Sarah gets an idea. Well, God said Abram would have a son, but he didn't necessarily say it would be by me. So she gets impatient. She tries to bring about the fulfillment of God's plan by her own initiative and her own fleshly perspective. And she gives her servant, Hagar, to Abram to conceive a child. And that act and the birth of that child, Ishmael, serve as an allegory that Paul develops in Galatians chapter 4. It serves as a prototype for all who try to come to God and achieve the blessing by their own works, by the works of the law. It's a serious failure of faith for Abram and Sarai, but it, it seemed to make sense to them at the time because they were thinking according to the flesh. <clears throat> but God says, no, that's not the error. After giving him the covenant of circumcision in chapter 17, God says, Sarah, your wife, he's very explicit, Sarah, your wife, is going to have a son. And Abraham Abraham seems to be incredulous and acts as if he would be satisfied if God would just bless Ishmael. But God says, no, I meant what I said. Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac, Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. I have different plans for Ishmael, he says, but Isaac is the chosen seed. Isaac is the chosen heir. Isaac is the means through which I will fulfill my promise and my purpose to bless the world. So when conflict arises in this household, as it will, first between Hagar and Sarah, And then later between Ishmael and Isaac, the result will be that Hagar and Ishmael will be required to leave. And Paul sees this as very symbolic of those in his own day who walked according to the flesh. They trust in the works of the law. They trust in the old covenant represented by Hagar and Ishmael. They persecute the true heirs, those who are born according to the spirit like Isaac was, by the the supernatural power of God. And so they whose, whose birth is achieved by purely natural means and whose relationship with God is based on their own works, they're cast out of the household because they're not the true heirs. But on the other hand, Isaac's birth represented a new creation. God calling into existence things that were not from a man and woman whose bodies were as good as dead, right? God uses Sarah's barrenness to bring into a cursed world the source of his blessing. And Isaac's birth will serve as a prototype, a figure of the new birth that belongs to all who are in Christ. But foundational to our new birth is the supernatural birth of Christ himself. And that is ultimately the point of God's choice of Isaac as the appointed seed. He represents Christ. Christ is the son of Abraham who brings blessing to the nations because he is the chosen heir. He is the one who receives the inheritance. He inherits more than the land of Canaan from the river of Egypt to the Euphrates River. He brings blessing to more than just the tribes of Israel who claim physical descent from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The blessings of land and physical posterity are typological. They're illustrative. They are not ultimately what God had in mind in his promise to Abraham. They point forward to the inheritance we receive in Christ. By his identity as the chosen seed. Attested by his supernatural birth, Christ brings blessing to all the tribes of the earth. But there's one more point I want us to see. First of all, Christ is the son of Abraham who brings blessing to the nations. Second, this, that blessing is nothing less than the reversal of the curse and the restoration of a new world. Third, Jesus Christ is uniquely qualified to bring about that new creation because he is the true seed and chosen heir. But fourth, last of all, Christ, the son of Abraham, brings blessing to the nations because he is sacrificed and raised again. Christ, the son of Abraham, brings blessing to the nations because he is sacrificed and raised again. Of course, that brings us to what I believe is really the climax of Abraham's story there in Genesis 22. I know you're familiar with the story. After all the years of waiting and suspense, after seasons of false hopes and foolish plans, after the fulfillment of God's promise, now it looks like it's impossible, right? Abraham and Sarah, God visits Sarah and she has a son. He's not just a son, he's the promised son, the heir, the one with whom God said he would establish his covenant and carry out his promise. Well, by now, he's at least partially grown. We know he's old enough not only to carry on a conversation with his father, but also even to carry a load of firewood for some distance. So by now, he may easily be into his teens. And God gives Abraham a completely shocking command. Take your son your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I shall tell you. Well, that is the supreme test of Abraham's faith, isn't it? It reveals where, what is the real object of his love and devotion. It reveals where his faith really lies. Is his trust in this child, the one that God gave him as the means of God's blessing? Or is his faith solely in the power of God himself? Because the suspense of this story goes deeper than a very natural concern for Isaac's welfare. Right? Isaac is supposed to become the ancestor of God's people. And how are those people going to be born if their ancestor dies a premature death? The survival of God's people and the fulfillment of God's promise hang in the balance. And this time it is by God's own command. But God has strengthened Abraham's faith through the years, through the lessons that he's learned. And as far as we can tell, Abraham does not appear to hesitate or to question God. We read in the book of Hebrews that Abraham believed if God wanted him to kill Isaac, and yet he had stated that he had chosen Isaac as the promised seed, Abraham concluded, well, God is able to raise him from the dead. So Abraham acts in faith and at just the right moment, God calls to him from heaven and tells him to stop. He lifts up his eyes and finds a ram that God has provided as a burnt offering in place instead of his son. And as a result of Abraham's act of faith, God confirms and clarifies the promise he had given to Abraham so many years before. We read it <clears throat> Um, From Genesis 22 earlier, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, that's the the use of the singular pronoun there, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So that helps us to see what the real question was there. The real point of crisis, the real threat to the fulfillment of God's promise was not Abraham's act of laying his son on the altar. It would have been Abraham's refusal to do so that would have disqualified both him and Isaac, his his seed, to inherit the promise and be the means of blessing to the entire world. The act of obedience was necessary as God responded to it with his reward of blessing. And of course... Abraham and Isaac's act of obedience prefigured an even greater event that would take place some 2,000 years later. For the true seed, the one great seed of Abraham, to bring blessing to the world, it was necessary that he would lay down his life in obedience to the Father. But we can never forget the one obvious difference, can we, between Isaac's sacrifice and the sacrifice of Christ. Because when that fateful moment came, there was no substitute for Jesus. There was no voice from heaven telling his executioners to stop. There was only silence and darkness as Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We know the reason why there was no substitute for Jesus was that he was the substitute. He who had often warned his fellow Israelites, disciples, uh, followers, the crowds, his enemies, throughout his earthly ministry, he had warned them about being cast into outer darkness. And yet he himself on the cross was cast into outer darkness for us. He bore the sins of his people. He suffered in their place because that's what was necessary for the son of Abraham to bring blessing to the nations. It's the point we, we passed over earlier in Galatians 3 where Paul talks about the curse of the law. Christ Christ ...redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. So that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Only through this sacrifice of Christ. Jesus became a curse for us, but he did not remain under the curse... He conquered the curse of sin and death by rising from the dead. Abraham received Isaac back from the dead, figuratively speaking, but that was a type and picture of the actual literal resurrection of Jesus. And so this story of Abraham, which apparently focuses so much upon his son Isaac, it's given to us in scripture in order to point us to his true son, his greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a beautiful story. It increases our understanding and our appreciation of God's marvelous plan of redemption, which has been accomplished in Christ. But before we close, I want us to consider for a a few minutes what it looks like when the beauty of this message really penetrates and sinks into our hearts. What does it look like when we learn to understand and value the work of Christ as the son of Abraham who brings eternal blessing to the nations? Maybe we can consider three broad areas of your Christian life, your walk with the Lord. How does it impact your worship? How does it impact your fellowship with other Christians? And how does it affect your outreach into your community, perhaps across the world? It's very common when someone is telling the story of Abraham and the sacrifice of Isaac to conclude by asking, Okay, so what is it, what is there in your life that God is calling you to give up? And I believe that's perfectly appropriate. In fact, God does call us to give up everything, doesn't he? Christ makes that absolutely clear. But let's not get the cart before the horse. Ultimately, this story is not about what we give up to God. It's what God has given to us. Does that knowledge affect your worship? Is that what drives you to meet with God's people on a regular basis? Of course, there are certain things we give to God in worship. We give him our praise in song and prayer. We give him our time and attention. We even give him our money. But those things are hollow and empty and vain if they are not given in recognition that ultimately we are the ones receiving from him. He is both the giver and the gift. He has given us himself in the person of his son. When Paul considered what it truly means to be sons of Abraham, to be the true circumcision, is is what he calls it in, in Philippians 3, the result for him was that he was stripped of all confidence in the flesh. So how do you think that affects your relationship with other believers? How does it affect that relationship when you stop looking to Christ? Or looking at others from a gospel-centered perspective. You lose sight of the righteousness that comes through faith in Christ. And you begin to look for confidence instead in the things you do or the way you are perceived by others. You worry about missing care group meeting or some opportunity to serve. Not because of the joy that you will miss, but because of what other people will think. You learn to choose your words in conversation with others carefully, not for the purpose of edification, but for self-promotion. You're reluctant to have your sin exposed. You're hesitant to ask questions that might uh, reveal your, your ignorance about Scripture. You learn to conceal your true self and avoid comments that will reflect poorly on you or your lack of sanctification. That's not the life of joyful freedom that Paul sees and describes um, as we experience fellowship uh, in the spirit. The knowledge of who I was. I was far from God and what Christ has done, he's brought me near. That sets me free to enjoy life with the saints who have also been brought near. The teaching that we observed in Galatians 3 that all believers are children of Abraham and children of God through faith in Christ, carries with it the idea in verse 28 that there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So what barriers does that break down between us and What barriers, we might take it a little further, what barriers does that break down when you try to bring the gospel to those who aren't quite like you? I think this can work. This works more than one way. Maybe it's the guy you're intimidated by because he's so wealthy and successful and seems to have it all together. Or maybe it's the girl you've been looking down on because she's covered with tattoos. Do you have the right, according to scripture, to view those things as barriers, perhaps not from sharing the gospel for a few minutes, but from sharing your life? We like to say this way of thinking and living is radical. And I think it is. But the truth is, it's no more radical than the gospel. God has broken down the ultimate barrier that separated himself from sinful man, when we fail to reach across cultural or personal boundaries that divide us from one another or from unbelievers, we are not walking according to the gospel. But the solution will not come about through our resolution, yeah, I'm going to try harder to reach out. The solution is only found by reshaping our minds to think according to the gospel of Christ. He is the chosen son of Abraham, the one uniquely qualified by his birth, death, and resurrection to bring outsiders in and pour upon them the blessings of eternal salvation. Brothers and sisters, taste the joy of that message. Tasting that joy is what will enable you to take part in the spread of that message to all the earth. Let's pray. Father, we have asked you to open our eyes to the value and worth of your son as he's revealed in the gospel. May we take it to heart. May we show we've taken this message to heart by the way we relate to you and to one another and to those who do not yet know you. Would you accomplish your good work and your will in us? As we taste the joy of what Christ has done for us, may we be eager to spread it to others. Would you be pleased to glorify yourself through us in this way? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.